0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about the September 11th attacks, and we have an interview with Pulitzer Prize finalist Robin Swan. But before we get to that, as always, feel free to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or you can follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook. And since we are getting... Closer to 20 episodes. I don't know if I mentioned this in the past, but I think we'll finish up our first season uh, at 20 episodes. I'm hoping to take just a week uh, or two off uh, just to kind of see and gauge where exactly we are in terms of listenership, in terms of uh, potentially adding um, someone to edit these so they're just a little bit smoother or adding music. That's something I'm also currently working on. Um, And as always, I feel free to promote this to your friends or family or anyone else you think might be interested in history. And also, I'm always looking for new topics to research or experts to talk to. So if you know anyone or if there's a specific area or topic that you want me to research and talk about or dedicate an episode to, uh, feel free to email me or uh, send me a DM on social media. I'm always welcome uh, to hearing those ideas. And the kind of transition in the September 11th attacks, uh, it's, I think it's gonna, it's one of those events that has defined the American experience in the 21st century. Uh, It's a little bit different from my perspective. I was two years old, so I have no recollection of the event. And growing up, it's just kind of something that you saw. And I think what's interesting about the September 11th attacks is that it's just so well-documented. A lot, just so many people took out cameras and cell phones and, you know, filmed this event. So it has a very personal experience for a lot of Americans. And also for me, too, having family in New York that were there that day and experienced September 11th attacks firsthand, it is one of those experiences that has really come to sort of, again, define the American experience uh in many ways and i'm not really sure what to make of it because it sort of again had a ripple effect on foreign policy on government on the way that we perceive the government and the way that we view terrorism and people from different cultures and religions and all of that and it's Again, something that's a little bit unique, especially for this generation, and that's why I wanted to do an episode on it, because at least for my generation, a generation of younger people that didn't experience it firsthand or really don't know or don't have firsthand experience of it, I think it'd be important to kind of also delve into the wider aspect of September 11th, because at the end of the day, it's not limited to just the attacks. There's a long-ranging series of events that sort of leads up to it. And obviously I think historians and policymakers are going to continue the debate about what events led to September 11th, uh, whether it was, you know, our involvement in the Middle East going all the way back to the Suez Canal crisis, or our support of Israel during the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, or you know, helping the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which would later become the Taliban. So, you know, there's all these events that, you know, leading up to September 11th, that go decades in advance. Not that Osama bin Laden initially, you know, as he, you know, rose up, wanted to attack the West. Um, That was something that sort of changed and that uh, Ms. Swan will talk about. So, um, I'll definitely give some more of my take in the aftermath. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We kind of cover pretty much Uh, the sort of rise of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden experience and the intelligent failures and the aftermath of September 11th. So hope you enjoyed that interview. On today's podcast, we're lucky to welcome on uh, Robin Swan. She's an award-winning journalist and author of two best-selling books, Sinatra, The Life, and The Arrogance of Power, The Secret World of Richard Nixon. She also wrote with her husband, Anthony Summers, A Matter of Honor, Pearl Harbor, Betrayal, Blame, and A Family's Quest for Justice, and The 11th Day, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in history in 2012. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And to start off, what is your favorite part of history of journalism to research and talk about? Uh, why is it your favorite, and how did you become interested in the September 11th attacks?
1: Well, without sounding flip, I think that the my favorite part of history to, to work on is always the thing I'm working on now. And, and I really mean that sincerely in the sense that, um, and I'm sure some you know, this will be reflected by some of your other guests, when you get into these projects— they are so often labyrinthine enormous complex um in in the, in the kind of work that i do they're very often they are subjects that have been covered by and you know government commissions with you know hundreds of staff um devoting millions of dollars to bring a one person or a two person team to that and expect time and again to find something new um, and, and to be expected to do that, um, yeah. and to be able to do that, you actually have and... to do- totally go down into the rabbit hole. And, and once you do that, then you can't, it's very hard to to come out, and, and you become so involved and so absorbed in the minutiae that, that you really, that's the only way to find things. And because of that, they all, you you, you get a passion for each one of them. Super. On. Um, on, as far as 9-11, I think that, like, like many people, um, it was sort of my, my generation's Kennedy assassination. You know, we all remember people of my age as opposed to people of your age. We all remember where we were on September the 11th, 2001. You know, I was sitting in a d- dentist's office when I came out and was told something strange is happening in New York. And my co-author was in San Francisco doing research for one of our other books. And, you know, the world changed that day and he couldn't, he couldn't move, he couldn't move around the United States. Rather like the experience we're all having now of flights being grounded, people not being able to move, businesses closing, people feeling afraid. Those same feelings were, were alive in all of us. Um, luckily, in that instance, Those feelings lasted only a matter of a few days, and we were able to get on with life. And when we did, it occurred to Anthony and I, my co-author, that what had happened that day was the kind of subject that we would one day want and need to write about, that we would want to bring the the kind of investigative research we do to a project to the 9-11 attacks. We didn't yet know what it was, but we knew that someday we would do it.
0: And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered, whether it's um, research into some of these big projects that you've done or just researching kind of history in general?
1: The, the obstacles are numerous. You know, it, it's a it's strange thing with writing history. There's a, a an, old, an old Russian saying, he lies like an eyewitness. And... <laughs> Memory is a is a funny thing. Uh, so you you're constantly dealing with what witnesses said at the time versus what they said years later. With what they say now, are their memories becoming better? Are their memories becoming uh, looser? Are they more free to speak in later years than they were at the time? So you have to weigh all the counterbalancing factors. Um, you know, a government official who may have felt um, constrained at the time event, an event takes place suddenly 20 years later says, well, actually. Um, and you, you have to weigh that. And if you're lucky, you can find some sort of documentary evidence or another written, witness to back up that source. So there are those kind of things. But then there are things like misinformation, intentional disinformation. Um, by government sources, by non-government sources. And these days, of course, we have the, you know, the constantly shifting sands of what's on the internet and what's on social media.
0: And to kind of get into some of the events leading up to the September 11th attacks, um, during your research, do you think there is a key event um, that occurred either in the Middle East or in the world that led to sort of the development of Um, extremism um, against the United States? Or do you think this is sort of a recent development that only happened in the 10 years leading up to uh, the September 11th attacks?
1: Well, I think it's interesting. We talk about terrorism and and what we think of what terrorism is. Okay. So terrorism is violent act or a, a threatening act meant to change the way the acted upon behaves. So if you look back through American history, you can see lots of terrorism, largely homegrown, and you can see that going back through even colonial days, when when settlers attacked Indians in order to make them behave in a certain way, and vice versa. And then certainly, you know, you saw the rise of of groups like the Ku Klux Klan and other far right and white supremacist groups who terrorized um, the black community in order to, you know, move them in certain ways. And then on into the 20th century, when you saw various anarchist groups arise or anti-labor movements um, and things like that. And even since 2001, I think in terms of terrorism, what one has seen time and again is the preponderance of far right terrorism and the violence associated with far right terrorism actually outweighing. Um, The deaths even on September the 11th. So I think we have to be careful when we we talk about terrorism, um, not to simply lay it at the door of uh, foreign actors, but also look within our own borders. Um, When you talk about the 9-11 attacks specifically, one has to go back, and, and I think you probably recognize this, Um, to a couple of different things. You have to look at the United States' role in the Middle East and how that is perceived by the Arab world. Uh, And and in particular, what I mean there is the United States' role vis-a-vis the the state of Israel and the Palestinian people. And I think you have to look then, too, at uh, the United States' role in the early war in Afghanistan, which uh, brought the United States... Into um, conflict, into a conflict, uh, into a conflict uh, with jihadis involved, in which the United States played a, a, a peculiar role, and, and that, and that possibly gets you into uh, Osama bin Laden and and things that you'd like to talk about in terms of bin Laden himself.
0: And can you just briefly kind of. Describe who Osama bin Laden was and how he kind of came to start um, Al Qaeda.
1: Sure. Well, bin Laden um, was one of 57 children of an, extraordinary, an extraordinarily wealthy Saudi uh, construction magnate. Um, you know, think of a Rockefeller or a Kennedy or someone like that. And, you know, that is the, the sort of place that Osama bin Laden's father held in the, the sort of Saudi elite, the family came from a part of the Ye- Yemen originally, um, but by the time Osama came along, they were living in very near Medina in Saudi Arabia, and and the family was so prominent and so wealthy that you know they were li- literally considered almost uh, you know a, a, almost a subgrouping of the royal family. You know the the father had the real patronage of the Saudi king built much of the infrastructure of modern Saudi Arabia, built several of the mosques in the in the most holy city. So the, the bin Laden's aren't Saudi royalty, but they're the next closest thing to it. Um, Osama's father was quite conservative. Um, he had 22 wives. He was quite religious, um, but he wasn't a radical. Bin Laden appears to have been radicalized um, later in his life, in, in his late teens, 20s, and then, uh, finally, from about 1979 on. um, In 1979, uh, the country Afghanistan was invaded by the Soviet Union. And many, many young Muslim men went to fight with the uh, rebel forces, the, the Afghan citizens who were called the Mujahideen, who were fighting against the Soviets to expel them from their country. And this was considered a a holy cause. And and Bin Laden was not alone in wanting to join that struggle. The role he played though was very interesting because at the same time that these young Muslim men were taking this on as their own cause, the Americans and the Saudi government were taking it on as their cause, um, a a cause of pushing godless communism back out of Afghanistan. Um, So the American CIA and Saudi intelligence were working very closely with the young uh, Mujahideen groups, and in particular with the young uh, Osama bin Laden, who was acting as a sort of middleman, um, supplying arms and money to these rebel groups. And from that time on, there's a complex relationship between bin Laden um, and the Americans and the, and, and the Saudi government, for that matter. Um, but at the same time, he is pursuing this goal of, of liberating Afghanistan. He himself is becoming more and more radicalized. He falls under the sway of a very fiery preacher called Abdallah Azam. And Azam essentially um, was preaching the idea that. Jihad would not end with the liberation of Afghanistan, that after after Afghanistan was liberated, it was going to be every individual Muslim's job to carry the fight outside, to carry the fight to all the lands that had once been Muslim lands and were now controlled by others. And this was something that would become a core and founding principle um, of Osama bin Laden's ideology and a core principle of al-Qaeda.
0: And even though that the Americans sort of worked together, uh, with a lot of these groups fighting against the Soviets, how did Osama's perspective on the West change? Was that just sort of came with the differences in culture and religion? When did Osama bin Laden begin to perceive kind of the West as the kind of enemy?
1: In 1990, 1991, when, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Uh, the Americans and put put together a coalition in order to try to force uh, Saddam back out of Kuwait and retake those lands. Now, at that time, no infidels, no um, non-Muslims, had ever um, been inside, uh, in force, in military force terms, um, Saudi Arabia. Um, the land of the holy mosques, and you know this is very, very important um, in the thinking of um, devout Muslims. And Osama actually went to um, the Saudi leadership and volunteered to bring his own forces, his own mujahideen forces, his own jihadi, young jihadis back to Saudi Arabia to fight the struggle himself and expel Saddam from 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 Kuwait. Um, and when the Saudis turned him down. This was almost a sort of turning point for him. The, the idea that, you know, the US had come they were, had come in force and they would never leave um, unless they were expelled. This became a sort of a, a key idea in, in his mind, in the mind of the men he led, uh, that the US began to be seen as the great Satan, the, the evil invader.
0: And when did Osama and Al Qaeda begin to sort of choose and carry out terrorist plots? Were there um, plots and attacks before September 11th, or was September 11th the first true kind of attack by Osama bin Laden on the West?
1: There, there were earlier attacks. Now, the uh, th- there were attacks um, in in 1995. Um, on the World Trade Center. Now, these, these were not Al Qaeda; they were Islamist, and they were, in, in, they would be later have be, be linked to um, Osama bin Laden through uh, common uh, common uh, theoreticians, common um, radical inspirations. There were there were attacks in in Kenya um, and, uh, in 1998, and there was an attack on the USS Cole. Uh, an American uh, naval vessel in the Yemen in October of 2000. Um, All of these would later be claimed by al-Qaeda. Osama was very clearly, he was preaching jihad against the U.S. He had issued uh, various calls to arms against the U.S. He was very much on the radar as someone, the United States, uh, should be very, very alert to someone whose activities were becoming more and more um, blatantly violent and blatantly Um, anti-American as the on on the issue of the specific targeting of the United States for the 9-11 attack. um, What can be said is that as early as 1994, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was uh, Really, the chief mastermind of the 9-11 plot, the actual attacks that day, um, had already been discussing the use of airplanes as weapons um, uh, prior to the first World Trade Center attack. Um, And that by 1998, almost three years before the attack, the essential target list had been decided on Um, the summer before um, 9-11 or I'm. I'll get my timings a little wrong here, but or maybe early 2000, Mohammed Atta, as leader of the group, leader of the hijab team, was allowed to sit in on discussions of what the targets would be, and and was allowed to even select a target himself. Uh, the idea being that they had narrowed the list down to the Pentagon, uh, the the Capitol building, uh, both World Trade Center towers, and Atta was supposed to come in with one other, and apparently the, the ideas being kicked around were either an embassy, and the notion was that it perhaps would have been the Israeli embassy, or a nuclear power plant. So in the end, those that tar- those targets were not chosen. Um, it didn't make the, the list. Um, but you know, this was a plot that was many years in its development with many opportunities at which it might have been uh, prevented.
0: And had other country, countries, um, specifically in the West, um, had their governments or intelligence services begun to sort of notice the threat of um, terrorism and these groups, uh, such as Al Qaeda, and take it seriously?
1: Ab- absolutely. Um, and 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 of course there were those in the United States, and one one shouldn't. Deride that the the degree to which some members of the U.S. intelligence community were taking this seriously, um, it just wasn't necessarily always getting through to the right people. That uh, on the notion of of other uh, count, other intelligence services, the French were very much aware of what was going on with with Al Qaeda, um, and at, at times were working closely with the United States to to uh, warn them to share information. So were the Germans. Um, There was a certain amount of cooperation, although not as much as one would have liked, um, especially on the terrorist financing end, um, from the Saudis and from the UAE. Um, But time and again, those two countries in particular, the Saudis and the UAE, um, were, were also counterproductive they 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 would draw back from from providing the kind of assistance requested so so there wasn't always um the the assistance required partly because you know er, every country has its own intelligence needs and security requirements and and acts out of its own self interest one of the issues with saudi arabia has been that um Those of us who have looked closely at what the Saudis did or didn't do about Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden um, have seen a pattern of Saudi government essentially, uh, to put it bluntly, paying off the terrorists to keep them off their own doorstep, um, financing jihad to keep it elsewhere, and following and, and being aware of what was going on, but not necessarily moving to, to shut it down. And their own secure internal security concerns have always taken precedent over any um, assistance they might give to their, you know, supposed allies.
0: The threats or attacks that began to change people's minds on the threat of terrorism, uh, specifically in the United States um, and the U.S. government.
1: The the attacks that I mentioned earlier, um, particularly the the, the attacks on the embassies in Africa in 1998 and on the coal in 2000, really were a wake-up call for many um, in the Clinton White House. Um, Sadly, that didn't always translate into action. Richard Clark um, um, was approached by one counterterrorism expert who basically said to him, What's it going to take, Dick? Um, who the shit do they think attack the coal? Um, the Martians? Um, you know, does Al-Qaeda have to attack the Pentagon to get their attention? And, you know, that would be a, you know, horribly prescient comment. Um, there were a few other curse words in that in that quote, but I left them out to be kind to your audience. <laughs>
0: And how uh, did the men who, you know, would go on to commit the September violent attacks get into the United States? Um, and were there suspicions that um, from law enforcement or from the U.S. government about their intentions?
1: Well, it's one of the the ironies of the 9/11 attacks that all of the hijackers came in legally uh, with visas, um, and Even those who uh, and some of them came and went to the United States repeatedly um, and even those who uh, were stopped for checks at the border control as they came through were eventually passed through even when an an individual border agent spotted in you know a small incongruity uh, somehow these were all missed and they were passed they were passed through Uh, the as is well known by now, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi citizens. And at that time, uh, the Saudis had a special arrangement with the United States whereby there was a program in place called Visa Express, which meant that you didn't even have to show up at the consulate um, in your home country to get a visa. It would, could all be done very, very, in a very relaxed fashion through a travel agent. Um, And so a lot of the what we call the muscle hijackers, their their visas to the U.S. were processed, even though there were, you know, numerous uh, typographical and spelling errors, things that you would have, you know, would have uh, you thought caught someone's attention. Um, If someone was claiming to come to um, the United States, say, to be a a computer expert, if he spelled the word computer wrong. Um, But nonetheless, um, all of these young men made it made their way into the US. Um, and then there's the story that uh, in 2000, one of the hijacked pilots, Zia Jera, was actually stopped on his way through um, transit in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And the authorities in Dubai actually picked up a marker in his passport that they thought was consistent with, with uh, terrorist activity. And uh, it's never been made clear exactly what that marker was, but it could have been a a, a particular passport stamp or some other kind of uh, small uh, indicator. Uh, And when they passed that information on to the United States, the U.S. uh, government told them to let him through and that they would follow up on it. And there is no indication that that any attempt was ever made to follow up on Zia Jara before the 9-11 attacks.
0: And would you contend that there was just generally an intelligence failure within the U.S. government in the lead up to the September 11th attacks?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, the 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 kind of thing that I just described is but one of numerous numerous examples that I could cite in which in our are in our book, The 11th Day. Um, um, a, a principal one uh, would be that. Uh, the, two of the lead hijackers, um, uh, Hazmi and Midar, um, uh, were known to be associates of Al-Qaeda. They were known to have multiple entry visas to the United States, and yet the CIA lost track of them. And not only did they lose track of them, they never told their FBI co- colleagues that they were even in the United States. Um, these same two hijackers lived for an extended period of time with an FBI informant. The FBI informant never reported to his handler anything about these two young men. Um, There are things like the fact that Philippine authorities later said that they had passed uh, the FBI um, a list of uh, potential targets, which pretty much matched the later potential targets that they had recovered back in 1995, when the early planning for the the World Trade the first World Trade Center attack was underway, so there are just multiple multiple occasions on which um, uh, either uh, in- the intelligence agencies didn't properly follow through an in- on, in- on investigations, didn't properly share information, uh, didn't pass it upward, uh, didn't succeed in bringing it. Uh, to the attention of the the decision-makers in a way that led to effective action. So, so yes, absolutely horrendous intelligence failures.
0: And to kind of just get into the specifics of the actual attacks, the vast majority of my listeners are 22 and under and probably couldn't remember or recall the exact events of the on 9/11, can you just briefly describe what happened and what the attacks consisted of?
1: Sure. Um, well, September the 11th, 2001, was a beautiful, stunningly beautiful September morning, um, and at 8:46, a flight, American Flight 11, out of Boston, um, was flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Within 15 minutes, another Boston flight, a um, United 175, flew into the South Tower. A third flight, American 77, flying out of Newark to Las Vegas, um, um, I'm sorry, flying from Las, um, to Las Vegas from Dulles in Washington, um, was crashed into the Pentagon building. And finally, um, a Fourth flight, United 93, on its way from Newark to San Francisco, crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Now, that flight had apparently been destined to hit the Capitol, but when um, passengers on board learned from their relatives on the ground that they were probably the victims of a hijacking and what was transpiring elsewhere in the country, they attempted to take control of the flight. And in the Violence that followed the the plane was crashed into the into a field. So uh, it really seems that the the passengers aboard that plane that day acted extraordinary extraordinarily in in trying to to overcome the the hijackers.
0: And overall, what were the different responses from the government, from the Bush administration, uh, from the military? Um, Yeah. Well,
1: on the day there was chaos. Um, and, and I can't do it justice. Um, 10 years after writing my book, um, or in the short time we have here to, to recreate it. But the military that day, um, NORAD was always, you know, the, the classic, a day late and a dollar short. They were chasing phantoms for most of the day. Um, You know, trying to track flights, get to flights, fighters launched, following the wrong flights, um, being given misinformation, Um, uh, chaos in the skies, really, in terms of the air defense operation. Um, President Bush um, was, for great periods of time that morning, out of touch with the White House. Uncontactable um, because communications broke down. The uh, vice president uh, was in the thing, a thing called the P.I.O.C., the Presidential Emergency Operations Center in the basement of the White House, with a few key aides. Um, and it was he who appears to have been making uh, many of the decisions that morning. Um, the chain of command, of course in the absence of the president runs a military chain of command would run to the secretary of defense, not to the vice president. Um, but the vice, the Dick Rumsfeld, who was then the uh, secretary of defense, was for a time, a quite considerable period of time that morning, unreachable. The Pentagon, of course, had come under attack. Um, he had gone down to the site of the, of the, of the, the, the actual physical site inside the Pentagon, where the plane had crashed into the building um, and was not really where he should be at his desk leading the leading the defense. The vice president, in the absence of conversations with either Rumsfeld Rumsfeld or the president, seems to have been the one who was put in the position that morning of issuing a shoot down order, giving authority to Um, the US military to take down a civilian airliner if they encountered it. And um, as far as we were able to recreate from all of the testimony and all the notes taken that day, um, it was not the president, but the vice president who made that decision only to later have it confirmed by the president. But it was it was not in the in the first instance made by President Bush.
0: And in the aftermath of uh, the attacks, how quickly do the United States um, realize and learn that Al-Qaeda was behind the attack?
1: Well, even as the president was flying back to, to Washington, um, you know, he was being briefed that it, you know, it was most likely that this was an Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden inspired or actually run attack attack. Um, by midnight of that night, they had recovered, the FBI had recovered sufficient evidence to to make it clear that this was an Islamist based attack. Um, they had recovered in, in Boston something that's very rarely talked about, a thing called the spiritual manual that the, um, one of the hijackers had in his luggage. I think it was Mohammed Atta, which was essentially um, an a part, last will and testament, partly sort of a. A guide to how what you should do and how you should pray and how what you should feel and and as you undertook this this glorious martyrdom and it was a very very uh, a very spiritual document very much based um, on on the Quran and and so it would have been clear that this was Islamist inspired. Um, bin Laden himself denied for weeks afterward that he was behind the attack, but. Nonetheless, the U.S. did quickly conclude that al-Qaeda was their main suspect. And, and, you know, the bombardment of an invasion of Afghanistan began very quickly afterward in search of um, bin Laden and in search of destroying the terrorist network in Afghanistan.
0: And in the months kind of after the. Uh... 9/11. Um, the 9/11 Commission was formed. Um, what was their overall goal, and who was on this commission?
1: Well, President Bush put together a commission in the wake of of the attacks. First, there was a jo- an, an, uh, uh, Congress held its own inquiry. The, uh, the Senate and the House put together uh, their intelligence committees put together a joint inquiry. The the president. It was clear from the start that there were probably intelligence failings. Um, that needed to be examined, and that was the the sort of goal of the commission the and it did sterling work in many ways um, it did highlight um, a lot of the intelligence failures that I've spoken about um, however, my more recent research leads me to believe that there are areas that were the commission was discouraged from 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 looking too closely at, um, uh, particularly um, with regard to the role of uh, the government of Saudi Arabia in supporting the hijackers and supporting the plot, and that those remain to be explored and and are, are an important issue that has never been properly dealt with.
0: And has anyone in the U.S. government or the intelligence committee or intelligence agencies really took any responsibility for the failures um, in the lead up to the September 11th attacks?
1: Well, the, bottom, the short answer to that question is no. If you're talking about taking responsibility in the military sense, you know, I, I did a book about Pearl Harbor and the commander in chief of the fleet um, you know, was, was lost his job, drummed out of the, uh, out of the service um, for the intelligence failures at Pearl Harbor um, and his alleged part in those failures. Um, No one has, has suffered that same fate with regard to the 9-11 attacks. Now the, what the 9-11 commission decided was that there needed to be major reorganization of the intelligence community. And uh, that, has happened. New departments were formed. The Department of Homeland Security. Um, there, there has been a, a, a sort of major revamping. But nothing that I have seen um, about that revamping actually gives me confidence that um, the problem has been solved. There are, I, I think, there are, in essence, I think they've created new problems.
0: And why September 11th is a very well-documented event. Why do you think there's so many people um, in the United States and the world that are sort of skeptical of 9-11 and what happened, and how did these sort of conspiracy theories sort of get developed and um, projected, really?
1: It's it's a very—you know, the whole idea of conspiracy theory is is something I— I I worry about um, discrediting too much because those of us who who look at at history know that conspiracies do exist. In the United States, we even recognize the existence of conspiracy in our laws, in the RICO statutes. We know that people do, in quotes, conspire to commit certain acts. Um, And so one just can't simply discount these things. We also know that our government on occasion lies to us. We didn't know in 1963 that the U.S. government had been conspiring to uh, assassinate um, Fidel Castro. Uh, uh, you know, the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee revealed that many, many years later. So there, there are real conspiracies. Um, there are real facts, and then there are the kind of fantasies and and factoids that emerge. Because people, I think, are looking for um, a a world that seems controllable. Chaos is frightening. And it is easier to accept a controlled plot than it is to accept the sort of screw-up theory of history. It's less frightening. Um, it's, It's sort of counterintuitive, but it seems to be the case.
0: And in the aftermath of the attacks, do you believe kind of the subsequent invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan were a direct uh, result of the September 11th attacks?
1: Well, I believe they were the direct result of them, but I don't believe they were necessarily the correct result of them. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I think you're really looking at Iraq when you, when you say that. Um, it's It's clear, it was clear from our reporting That the desire to get into Iraq and um, get rid of Saddam Hussein um, was at the top of everyone's mind in the White House from within moments of the September 11th attack. Within within days, it was on it was on the it was on the list. And uh, that idea, the the sort of idea. of the one percent, of the you know personified in the phrase, the one percent doctrine. You know, if there's a one percent chance that they have weapons of mass destruction, we're not going to wait around to to, to find out. Um, uh, President Bush's um, Axis of Evil speech in in January of 2002, where he called out various countries for for being part of those who support terror. You're either on our side or you're on their side. You either support terrorists or you support the United States. And at that point, and you know, right after September 11th, we had the goodwill of the whole world. We had the goodwill of, of Europe. We had the goodwill of NATO. We had a we had the world behind us. You know, the French said we are all Americans now. Um, and that in that environment, the idea of cleaning out the terrorists was very, very tempting. And so, um, to go into Iraq um, and clean out um, Saddam Hussein seemed like a, the, the natural thing, the natural progression of, of the, the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld doctrine of that time. Um, so, yes, they were a direct result. Were they correct and, 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 you know, the right thing to do? That is very, very debatable.
0: And just to ask some concluding questions, overall, what do you think the legacy of the September 11th attacks are?
1: A complex question. Um, There, you know, I think there are many things about the the years since 9-11 that are true. You know, the United States has been engaged in a seemingly endless war, more endless than the engagement in Vietnam that was so damaging to, to both the United States reputation in the world, to its own psyche, to what we thought of ourselves. Um, and I think there have been similar kind of damage done by the, the endless war in Afghanistan and, and our other engagements in the Middle East. Um, the terrible loss of life of all those complex terror, uh, you know, both U.S., but mostly in those countries in which we have been fighting, um, that you know the the loss of of our loss of way in pursuing policies that the United States has always claimed to stand against the rendition of of uh, prisoners, the torture of prisoners, the justification, of the, the you know the search for justification for those acts. Um, the persistent Islam, anti-Islamic feeling that is alive in the United States today, uh, feelings that you know find expression in, in in what our current president does when he you know comes into office and immediately you know issues a travel ban on people coming from Muslim countries. Um, um, our unwillingness to to lead on the world stage, which is you know kind of comes from all those years of of, of hyper engagement and conflict. Um um and 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 distrust in in government and 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 things that led to um what some could probably call the Trump revolution where you know, the idea that we're going to you know that experts and and insiders and are devalued and and we need to be led by someone who comes from the outside um, all of those things are are, are byproducts of of 9-11. They're not necessarily the the things that we thought would happen when the attacks occurred, um, but they they are with us still. And and of course, there's also the terrible consequence that people don't often think about, which is that right after 9-11, when the the dust and and smoke were still lying heavily on the city, um, the head of the Health and Human Services, I think it was, or the EPA, I can't remember right now, um, announced that it was safe to go back to work and that New York was safe. And that was not true. And those toxic fumes will eventually kill many thousands of people more than the 9-11 attacks themselves. And that was our own government lying to us about um, what was safe or not safe to do. Um, And the reasons given uh, were very similar to the reasons that President Trump gives now for wanting to open up the economy again. You know that America needs to get back to work, um, and um, discounting the the many many lives that that were badly affected by that toxic dust. So I think you know there there are things that. People forget about when they think about 9/11, and sometimes there are things they forget about when they think about 9/11 that still actually should be. We should. We should. We need to continue to think about.
0: And do you kind of follow up? Do you think kind of the story of September 11th is much more complex than the actual attacks themselves, which are probably the most remembered, you know, part of this event?
1: Uh, I I I do. I think. One, I think there's always more to talk about um, when you're talking about an important, um, an event as cataclysmic as the one that 9-11 proved to be. One question that I think few people ever come to terms with um, is the whole issue of what, um, the whole issue of Palestine, the Palestinians, um, and what that meant to the hijackers, and uh, what it meant to Bin Laden, and what role that beliefs that the United States um, uh, had behaved badly um, uh, in the Middle East, um, what role that had in shaping the mindset of the, the hijackers. Now, many people say that bin Laden didn't start talking about the Palestinians until after the 9-11 attacks. Um, Our our research tells us that that's not true. And certainly, many of the young hijackers were very moved by the issue of Palestine. They were less sophisticated thinkers than bin Laden, but they were well aware um, of the plight of the refugees. They were well aware of the situation in the West Bank and Gaza. And and those were significant things
0: to them. And it took a while to find and eventually kill Osama bin Laden. Do you think that sort of closed um, the chapter on the September 11th attacks, or do you still think there are a lot of unanswered questions? Uh,
1: I, I think that the death of bin Laden um, was an important punctuation point um, emotionally. However, it didn't answer the remaining questions that I have um, and those uh, about the attacks themselves. And I am personally interested in continuing to pursue um, the questions surrounding possible terrorist support networks uh, for the hijackers uh, within the United States and who they were uh, and what exact, what role they played. I am still interested in pursuing the, um, Questions of what role uh, Saudi government officials may have played in supporting al-Qaeda or the hijackers in the United States. I think those are important questions. They relate directly to our relations with a key ally in the Middle East. And, and they are they have yet to be solved um, to my satisfaction. Um, there's ongoing civil litigation by the. Um, families and victims against the kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, because of that. And that litigation goes beyond the issue of terrorist financing, which is is certainly important, but it's not the only thing. And I I think it's important to, to finally see um, some resolution to those questions.
0: And, uh, what has been kind of the most interesting aspect of your research into the text or something that the unexpected that you sort of discovered?
1: I, you know, there, there, there were so many things. Um, and, and I think uh, it'd be nice to, to, I think to, to end on um, something positive, which is, and, and I always think of the story of Danny Lewin and Danny Lewin was a young um, Jewish businessman um, who was on flight eleven and he was he was a brilliant young man who had been involved in developing some of the first algorithmic tools for the internet and he was on his way to a conference on the west coast um, and as I believe he had dual U.S.-Israeli citizenship, and he had, because of that, he had served briefly in the Israeli Defense Forces, the way all young Israelis do, and he spoke Arabic. And my research suggests strongly that Danny Lewin was the first person to die that day. And the supposition is that because he 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 perhaps understood what was being said by the passengers near him, um, that he rose to, to intervene and was stabbed to death. And I think that people need to know that, um, you know, in difficult circumstances, in frightening circumstances, other human beings um, come forward to to behave in ways that we all wish we would behave, that there are heroes out there, there were heroes on flight 93, there was at least one hero on flight 11. And, and they need to remember that. And I think that's, that's, that's a positive takeaway, especially in these very, very frightening times for people when they're looking for, um, for leadership. Um, They need to look, you know, it's not always coming from where they think it's going to come from, it could be coming from the person right next door.
0: Uh, And then just kind of a final question. Do you have any advice for kind of young people that are interested in the field of journalism or researching in the field of history?
1: Don't do it. (laughs) No, no. um, uh, Advice. I think you, it's what we do is just, it's such a gift. It is, it is such a privilege to write history, to even attempt to write history. I, I, I would always encourage anyone to, 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 to try their hand. Try to get as close as you can to the contemporaneous document, that wonderful source that no one has seen before. Um, you know, I found one on a story that was 75 years old. Um, uh, for our Pearl Harbor book, I found a map um, that no one had ever seen before that proved conclusively that there was intelligence um, within the Navy Department um, about um, about the levels of, of uh, depth at which torpedo could be effective that no one had ever looked at and no one had ever seen it or examined it or understood it at the time. And it would have changed the way they had acted. It would have saved the lives of those men had one man recognized what that map said and what that map showed. And to find that 75 years later, it isn't because I'm so brilliant. It's because there are these things that are there to be found if you work hard enough. And you just keep squirreling away at it. And I think that is... um, it, it It's an extraordinary thing to be able to do that, to have the privilege of doing that and and documenting what really happened for people. Um, we need evidence. We need evidence-based history, not not polemic and not, you know, conspiracy.
0: So we just had that interview with Ms. Swan. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I enjoyed her knowledge uh, on, the, uh, on the attacks and also really uh, hope, I encourage you to read her books because she uh, delves into more of like the, as we kind of talked about, the intelligent failures and the lead up to the September 11th attacks. Um, and I also did just want to get her perspective on maybe the aftermath. And as she said um, for kind of her generation that was our age when the attacks occurred, they all remember where they were. I think it was sort of like the JFK generation. They all remember where they were when they found out JFK was assassinated. And, you know, it's interesting talking about these types of events because my guess is that, you know, everyone my age is going to know and really remember their experience during this pandemic. I think, you know, the September 11th attacks, the Great Recession, and the Coronavirus are probably going to be the three defining events um, of the American experience and probably the first twenty-five years of this century, unless obviously something happens before twenty twenty-five, which I certainly hope not. But that is just my um, my guess. Um, what those are going to be, and in many ways, I one of the things that I continue to learn. And realize throughout this podcast, as I do these episodes, is understand how different events are really connected to each other. And for example, the September 11th attacks. To really understand them, you have to go back, you know, almost five decades when we first got involved in the Middle East, and sort of the evolution of American foreign policy in the region that eventually leads us to the involvement that we have today. And obviously, as Ms. Swan said. You know, the invasion of Iraq, for example, wasn't necessarily a byproduct of the September 11th attacks, but it did supercharge the Bush administration's sort of urgency and conviction to intervene in the Middle East in ways that we, that we really couldn't have foreseen. And obviously we're not, I mean, we're still involved in the Middle East, not to the extent that we were in the 2000s. But again, it's, the Middle East I think is interesting because it's, We've been involved there for almost 70 years i can't think of any other region where the united states has been involved in as long as we had and there have been you know surges and uh, pullouts and all of that but at the end of the day we've always sort of been there and again people will probably argue the only reason we are there is because of the oil and things like that um, and not to sort of go off on a tangent but again i think the september 11th attacks are in many ways a byproduct of our extended involvement in the Middle East and sort of how extremist groups sort of rose um, because of the disliking of Western involvement in the Middle East in particular. Uh, so that's pretty much all that I had on the September 11th attacks. I think, again, it's just one of those events that for a generation of Americans is always going to stick with them more than anything. Else, just as, again, I think that the coronavirus is going to stick with me and my generation. Um, so if you reach this uh, the end of the episode, uh, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you do listen to us on there, if we help get our ratings up, more people able to see it. And also, I always appreciate that uh, there are people that do. Uh, if anything, it just takes a second to do. Um, the next two episodes... Um, we'll be covering the battle of Passchendaele, uh, and the lead up to Iraq. So sort of a flip flop. Um, and I, as always, I'll, you know, put a poll on social media and you guys can vote about what you would want to see. I would sort of personally recommend the road to Iraq because in many ways, September 11th attacks influenced the Bush administration in the invasion to Iraq. And we had a uh, I'm doing an interview later this week. I'm recording this on May 2nd, so about a week before this podcast uh, drops. Um, and we are getting closer to of uh, season one, the end of season one. So again, as always, thank you for the support and I hope you enjoyed this episode.